0: Welcome to the 11th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's audio magazine podcast. Ear to the Ground features interviews, reviews, and field reports related to sustainable agriculture, family farming, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm your host, Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. Ear to the Ground numbers 9 and 10 featured a discussion of how farming can produce multiple benefits beyond just production of food and fiber. Specifically, we looked at the Multiple Benefits of Agriculture Research Project – and its findings that water quality can be improved utilizing diverse farming systems on working farmlands. In one case, a modeling study showed that the amount of eroded soil making its way into a waterway could be cut as much as 84% by planting less annual row crops like corn and soybeans, and more perennials such as grass and hay. In this installment, we're going to get the farmer's perspective on the role agriculture can play in improving water quality. Dan French is an example of someone who wants to protect the land he's farming, but needs to make a living at it as well. He and his wife, Muriel, own and operate a dairy farm in southeast Minnesota's Dodge County. Until the late 1980s, they were a typical operation. They milked 60 cows, had a farrow to finish hog enterprise, and grew corn and hay. A severe drought in 1988 got them to thinking that they needed to change their farming operations significantly if they were to survive into the 1990s and beyond. That's when they switch to managed rotational grazing, a low-cost system of producing milk that moves the animals through a series of paddocks. This prevents overgrazing, spreads manure on the ground in an environmentally sound manner, and extends the grazing season significantly. Some years, the Frenches have the cattle out on pasture for as long as eight months. During the winter, the cattle are fed haylage that has been harvested and bagged. The Frenches are growing. They milked 180 cows in 2005 and expect to be up to 200 head by the end of 2006. But Dan and Muriel have not planted row crops of any significant amount on the 450 acres they farm for several years now. They are bucking the conventional wisdom that a profitable dairy farm must feed its cows' feeds derived from row crops. A reliance on grazing means the French farm is covered with perennial plants like grass and hay throughout the year, providing invaluable soil protection. Their land is a bit of an anomaly in an area that's increasingly dominated by large tracts of corn and soybeans. Less soil, manure, and other pollutants are leaving the French farm as runoff. And as scientists have discovered, it also means Millican Creek, a small stream flowing through their land, is cleaner than it's been in years. On a recent January morning, Dan French took time out from chores to discuss how his family has risen to the challenge of making a living on the land while protecting the stream that runs through their farm. He also talked about how the general public can help make environmentally friendly farming systems more of the norm.
1: We the creek is a it's, a it's a it's a problem and it's a blessing at the same time. There's a lot of beauty goes along with it. We have a, a lot of hills because the creek uh, obviously cut through. We have a lot of limestone cliffs and cedar trees, and it's a very beautiful place. But it also is a, a extra work, and, and so, so it's always taking some extra management. But and the creek typically is about 25 foot wide, knee deep to a foot deep in the fall. And, and um uh, as we've had different more and more uh, uh change in the weather pattern it we have to always plan for floods and and uh, we've just seen a big difference in the way that it floods it uh, because of the land usage up river it's it uh, we have to always have in the back of our head what's going to happen to that creek and because it splits us right in the middle and and uh, so it's uh um it's a it's a problem but at the same time it's a It's something I guess we'd we'd like to... We wouldn't want to be without a creek. It's really pretty.
0: Dan, you were a member of the Monitoring Project back in the 1990s. That's where farmers, environmental officials, uh, scientists got together and studied the effects of certain uh, farming systems, such as managed rotational grazing on um, water quality, wildlife, uh, various aspects of the environment. Um, I know that they studied uh, your stream here. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what they found and... And what you observed well we'd we'd known for a long time that
1: the way we were managing the creek was uh, well on a long time, but for several years that that it it felt uh, right we'd we'd actually had uh put the creek into permanent rest for a couple of years because of uh, we'd changed put strips out we took all the fences out, and we just by by the due fact of slothfulness we just didn't have any fences out there so and We saw a big increase in erosion on the creek.
0: Let me interrupt here a minute. So when you actually fenced it off, you you actually found an increase in erosion.
1: Yes, we actually saw a big increase. As a matter of fact, our teenagers were here and they they could see that. And we actually went and hauled rocks into try and stabilize. And went to the neighbors, the county commissioner actually, and asked them if we could pick up rocks. So we need to stabilize those banks. We saw a huge increase, and and it was partly a, it was a, a year with several storm events, but it just was a total opposite of what it, what we've been had been led to expect and so we'd put the cattle back on and our cattle are in the stream and i think it's really important that they're in this you know in the area at one time for about 12 hours and then they're out for 30 days and back and so by doing that we uh we thought we'd saw some big improvements in the stream banks and we got the stream banks in the nice gentle slopes that that uh the habitat people want and all those things, and and the cows did that. They were, I didn't do anything. The cows just did it over a period of time. And, and then when, so we were thinking we were doing a pretty good job. We, when all I was thinking about was uh, soil erosion. We just weren't moving much. But the, then Bruce came down and and uh, their teams and they and they had some grad students um, start to do some fish counts and some macroinvertebrates and a bunch of names I can't pronounce counts <laughs> and and what they found was is a very healthy stream. And then it looked really good, and so we actually put a couple more sites in, and so we control about two miles of the stream. We're on on both sides for almost two miles. There's just a little spot that we don't have one side of in that two miles. So we went clear down to the end, and what we started to find was an increase in water quality as the stream flowed through here. Uh, of a stream that was already fairly good, but, but it was actually... So the... Uh, uh fecal coliform dropped and a couple other things started to drop we didn't see any downside to this we just saw a stream getting a little cleaner and uh um it wasn't like a huge deal but it was a really good news because the assumption was that individual landowner and i I mean we've had that discussion with many people couldn't do much to make a change and what we found is that yes you can make a change and so we were very pleased and and uh, uh for me it was uh it was an exciting time to find this stuff out. I mean, we thought we were doing a good job, but we actually were doing a better job than we thought. And it was just by accident. I mean, it wasn't like, gee, we sat down and planned this. It was just a series of interesting uh, happenings that happened. And so we're really pleased with that. And what we've, and part of the discussion we'd had in that team and, and uh, with the habitat specialists is that every time I, that I had seen a, a tree on a riverbank in this part of and I'm not saying it fits in a lot of other places, but we'd see increased erosion when they were at a tree. And sooner or later, the water would just keep digging in there because it would shade the grass, and then it would start exposing the roots, and and, uh, eventually most of those trees right on the riverbank would be eroded out, and they'd drop into the river. And so we were just asking some questions about that because it didn't make sense what they were saying, is that we needed to fence them off and plant trees. And actually got the DNR folks to go back and reread the original settler's journals. And in southeast Minnesota, there were big floodplains that were just grass. And, yeah. and the fire and the buffalo had, had kept them like that. And so it uh, – now, other places, I mean, we're all looking for one-size-fits-all management. But right. so it just doesn't work in other places. Up north, you don't want to cut the trees off. That slows snow melt. But here, it doesn't appear the trees and – from what I can see, and other people are saying the same thing, the trees along the stream are the are the right thing. This was meant to have uh, a grass, and in in Wisconsin, the, this, we, they found the same things. And times we we're looking, when they go from grass to shrubs, the the quality of the stream starts to deteriorate. And when they go to the trees, it really starts to deteriorate. And so. Um, so managing this in grass seems to have some advantages for southeast Minnesota.
0: That's a pretty big paradigm shift. Um, that must have been a, a big surprise for you. And I, I was wondering what was it like to kind of get your mind around uh, taking such a different view of how to improve water quality on your farm and the relationship of your livestock to that water.
1: Well, you know, I mean, it, it wasn't a, for me. It was just the observation. And having the increase in erosion when we did do it yeah. and then go back. And so, I, I mean, I just... In the back of my mind, there was like, something isn't right in this, but I just didn't understand the significance of it. And then we we actually, I mean, for me, it was a big deal to figure out that I could actually clean water up as it flowed through. I mean, I I guess we never thought of that at all. And and, uh, so it was a big deal. Uh, For me, it was a really exciting piece. And uh, um, so I've been excited about water quality ever since.
0: Traditionally, when we think of conservation farming, we, we think of putting in structures like terraces, grassy waterways, that type of thing, just to prevent further damage to the environment. But this is a little different what we're talking about here. We're actually talking about improving water quality through the farming systems that we use.
1: Uh, yes, and, and PCA is now, uh, there's an ongoing project right now. We, we've always encouraged research because it helps us. It also helps... Um, i think defend my right to do this and so i'm uh, so pca is now uh joe magner um hard metnik from nrcs has gotten a grant and they're actually in doing uh the measurements on the str- on the stream banks and and the same they find the same thing we found in the 90s mm-hmm. that uh, i can do for nothing what they have to move heavy equipment in and at one time, the cost was seventy five thousand dollars a mile. I think it's more than that now, quite a bit more, to recreate Trout Stream, and then they have to do it over again. And I can do it for nothing and maintain it. And so, um, it's a, it's an interesting concept that uh, this whole prairie system. This used to be a, a, a oak savanna, is what they tell right. us in this part, and that was all formed with fire and herb. Large herds. Every big plain is formed with large herds of herbivores. And the predators, because they make the predators make the herbivores act different when they're around, and and so trying to figure out how to do that, and so it's in, it's encouraged me and give give me uh, incentive to, to keep trying to figure out how to mimic that when I'm doing this, and so it's been a, a very interesting um, change for us, and and a lot of people are thinking and looking at it and, and um, trying to figure out what's that mean long term for policy because. Uh, I have some real problems with the fact that I think, and I said it publicly and don't always get good reception, that we're paying people to fence off streams in southern southeast Minnesota, planting trees, and we're going to be paying the same people to cut the trees down in the future.
0: Well, it's great when you when you observe these changes right on the farm, but I guess the next step would be to try to get um, government officials, both on the state and federal level, who are, are in charge of regulating uh, the environment as well as who may be... Uh, have cost share funds available for putting in certain systems. I guess we need to convince them that uh, that uh, cattle and streams can mix when done the, in a proper way. Um, have you had good luck getting them to come out, see what's going on, and and uh, kind of get them to shift their views of this?
1: Well, it's it's a whole a whole gamut of people. I think that government agencies, but before changing them usually you got to work with uh, and we brought in some people from other non-profits and and that's ongoing thing and and uh, and the movers and shakers because the lower guys they they see it and they want to make a change but this is policy and so policies are always slow to be enacted and very slow to be changed or modified when there's an just it's just hard to do and it's nobody's at fault it's just a system that so yes, bringing we we have tours almost every year, and with always in the back of my mind, that's what I want to show them is that you can actually do it this way for no cost to the public, and huge public good. And so, if more people are doing it, this won't work at every place along every stream. As you get bigger streams, and you get more f- upstream flooding, I mean, it will work the best. You start at the headwaters of a creek and just keep working your way down. But um, there are some options here, and. and uh, Um, but again it takes management it's not uh, I can't just park those cattle we've all seen the disasters when you park cattle in a stream all summer long and uh, so it's management and and teaching people how to do this management and and those kind of things it's all part and parcel of it but so it's For me, it's another set of tools in the toolbox that all of us need to look at.
0: Now, when we have cattle uh, on stream banks or uh, down in the watershed like that, it's not like they're just standing around in the water. Can you kind of take us through the logistics of what it actually means to graze a stream bank, uh, what you're actually doing? Um, You're not just parking them on the stream for uh, long periods of time.
1: Um, What we have is we have a lot of, uh, especially along the streams, we've got permanent, well, there are fences that... If it floods, we can fix easily, but we have permanent paddocks, and so the longest that um, most of these are on are for twelve for the male cows it's twelve hours, or the heifers it may be two days or three days at the longest. And then, but and what we didn't know before, and what we're learning is that the rest period is critical. So it's like mowing your lawn, and then. The lawn. We just keep it. We just want to keep it down under control because the lawnmower will start to plug and all those kinds of right. things. Here, what we want to do is actually encourage regrowth and make the health. Of, and we actually change the plants that come. Then, if we, so we, the, the general rule of thumb is we're on for twelve hours and then we're resting it for thirty days. And what we've seen is a big change in the even the plant life down along the stream when we did that. And. and uh, um and and then the bank the banks will start to crumble in as the cattle walk along and the grass will grow and pretty soon you have a nice two-to-one slope so that it as the river comes up there's more capacity to help hold the flood water and then that that sod the cattle actually encourage the sod that stabilizes the banks that's what the that's the difference of this and any other system is that there's actually sod on the banks and unless there's a a really, really powerful flood that will rip out a bank or ice flows in the spring, it will just stay there and it just gets thicker and thicker and and just uh, permanently parks that uh, that riverbank in that shape. And so it really works well.
0: So, It seems like we have three things going on here as far as uh, uh, benefits to the environment. One is you have um, cattle to actually soften the stream bank and, and to break that down and make it so it's not it's just a sharp cut. But the other thing we have going on is because you're doing rotational grazing, it's economically viable for you, um, you have, a, I guess, a, an excuse to keep that land covered in perennial systems like grass or, or forages that, uh, that you uh, can justify it as a farmer to, to keep that ground covered uh, year-round, and, and that helps reduce the runoff and the erosion and that type of thing. And I guess the third thing going on here is because the cattle are being rotationally grazed and they're moving around frequently, they're spreading their own manure, so we don't get concentrations of nutrients in one place and, and have uh, the problems associated with runoff of con- of concentrated levels of manure.
1: Yeah, we um, there are people with, who fence their streams off, but putting cattle on becomes a, an issue, even if you just would do it once in a while, but then where do you have the cattle the rest of the time? And, then, and you know, I just came back from a Nature Conservancy meeting this last week, and we were just talking about because I keep telling my Nature Conservancy friends and my DNR friends, they, they're pyromaniacs. They love to do fire, <laughs> and they need to have cattle, and, and they're trying to, they actually know that the, the people on the land know they need uh, herbivores, buffalo or cattle or whatever. Okay. And But it's in that, what do you do with them in the wintertime? Are you competing with other farmers? All those things that they have to—it's not easy. It's not easy to make that move. But there's more and more of it, and they're actually looking for farmers to run cattle on. Some uh, DNR has been actively seeking people to run them on some state park lands. Mm-hmm. And, but then you got to find the right farmer who will do this and all that. But uh, so for us, there's a there's a bottom line that says that this is good, and, and there's a way to keep the... because you don't you just don't have cattle on for a few months and then park them for the rest. It's not like all a right. piece of machinery. So yes, it it this system helps uh, fits into the system really well and then back to the manure thing and what we're trying to do in every way is uh and it looks better and better as the fuel prices rise up is uh get out of materials handling we don't want to haul feed in and we don't want to haul manure back out okay. and that's the way a lot of farms are they're very efficient at that but huge amount of money and a huge cost and a huge maintenance uh, uh to that system and so, um, what we are trying to do in every way possible is not to um, haul materials and we keep thinking about that and let the cattle do the work and it's natural for them and they're much healthier and they actually enjoy it and uh, we try and uh, do the things we want to do and not be busy farming, that's what we're trying to do. For us, uh, that's the last thing we want to do is run a lot of equipment. We still have to hay, we still have to do a little field work but uh,
0: way less than we did before. I guess we should make it clear that this isn't, um, uh, maybe when people think of grazing, they may think the, of the old system where you turn the cattle out in the spring and bring them in in the fall, and during the, the growing season they're out on a permanent pasture, one big pasture, all, all uh, during the summer months and uh, overgrazing some parts of it and and causing uh, cow pass and, and other problems that, that can contribute actually contribute to uh, erosion and runoff in their own way. This is a, a whole different way of doing grazing that we're talking about.
1: Well, I guess the simplest thing is just take your lawn and divide your lawn into twelve squares or ten squares, and you mow just a little square each time, and 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 each day or each three days or something like that. You'd have grass at all different heights, and that's what we try and to do with the cattle. And so uh, we have um, we don't have a because of the way we go in and work in those fields, we have some temporary, some plastic fencing that works really well, electric fencing. and So the cows get enough feed for what they're going to need in the next 12 hours. And then they come in and get milked, and then they go to another pasture for the next 12 hours. And you can do that with different, you can move it every four hours or whatever. We just said settle in in 12 hours. So that they're always getting fresh pasture, and the cows know to expect that and demand it, actually. And if you don't give it to them, they will let you know real quickly that you've forgotten and uh then so they they're on for 12 hours so each day they would get two separate amounts of fresh grass and uh at the right height and at the right maturity and that's part of our job to manage that and then the next day they get two more and on and on but then when we take them off then that pasture they were on today gets a chance to regrow and replenish its root supply and and uh, um get healthy again and get to a mature state and we take it off again and, and so and then we have then part of what we manage is that different grasses grow at different rates and and so we have a different variety of grasses so that we're always um keeping so there's pasture every day for these animals but also to extend our grazing season as long as we can and, and to get good production and get efficiency and because uh, our, our the name of our game is we want to Take that sunlight and capture as much sunlight as possible through this grass and healthy ground, and then transfer that sunlight into uh, through these milk cows into into milk and do that as cheaply as possible and that's how we make our profit and then sell our milk at a, at a uh, in a way that makes us profit also so th- our job is to literally is to capture sunlight and turn it into milk and turn it into profit
0: speaking of profit um, you're not independently wealthy uh, this is great that it's uh, helping the environment, but it would mean little for the future of your family and your farming operation if it wasn't um, economically viable. Uh, I guess is has managed rotational grazing and this type of system uh, turned out to be economically viable in the long term for your uh, operation?
1: Yeah, um, it actually works pretty well. And, and um, I just, just had a conference last week in a workshop, and I think Dennis Johnson said there's research from Minnesota out to New York has been ongoing ongoing... A bunch of guys in a network from the universities, and what they found is that, uh, on the average, uh, grazers produce milk at a $1.75 less per hundredweight than a, than conventional dairies. Oh. And so it's an on, ongoing set of research, and, of course, everybody's different. That's just a set of averages, and there are people who do really well on both sides of the camp and, and people who don't do so well. So, yes, there's an advantage and uh, there's a psychological advantage too. This is a lot more fun, and so the people we talk to just enjoy this more, and so there's more incentive to make it happen and and uh, so it, and the other piece is you just don't have such an investment uh, a new dairy, especially confinement dairy is millions of dollars and we talk to young people all the time who are trying to get started be on their own, and they just have way less investment to do it this way and so um the less you have invested, the more you can change and adapt and move as you need to and Uh, be ready to meet the different changes in the marketplace. And so we just think uh, economically it's it's got a lot of future.
0: You've talked a little bit about this being a public good and and trying to make some of these changes through government policy. But um, more and more in recent years, we've also seen that consumers can support this type of farming through uh, uh, some of the decisions they make when they go food shopping. And I know you've gotten together with some farmers in the area to create a co-op to kind of add value to your grass-based dairy products. And uh, it's been a way for you to get rewarded through the marketplace for uh, doing a type of farming that protects water quality. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: We have a what well, we think called a grazing group because it's really hard to get information when you're not in the mainstream. And so we get together in different people's farms once a month. And it's broken up into kind of geographic areas just because of the travel. And we were just having the conversation a few years ago about we had this pretty good product. We were reading about it, some other people who were selling grass-fed uh, uh, products, and uh, decided uh, to start to work on that. It was a fairly long process, but we have a small cooperative now, and it's really going well. And and uh, we have six families on four farms right now, and are uh, actually have have done a, have developed enough of a market. We're actually starting to seek some other farms and. And we make uh, cheeses, some high-quality cheeses, and some uh, butter. And uh, we don't make it; we actually have it made for us in some small plants that've been around for a while. And uh, take our milk there, and very carefully keep it segregated, and and use our milk, and 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 uh, they make it in their plants with with some recipes that've been around for a long. Time. And and we've been uh, blessed, I guess, because uh, the recipes and the milk and we have some really good products, and uh, we've won some awards. and, and uh, um, But there's more and more people like us, and there's people who have beef, grass-finished beef, and there's hogs on pasture and chickens on, on pasture, and we just know a lot of folks who are doing that, and and eggs and milk and all of the dairy products and those kind of things. And so um, a lot of meat, and, and people are – it's a growing industry because people want – the consumers want to know where their food's coming from, and they want the the health benefits from grass uh, grass raised uh, products er uh, animals, and and uh, many of us are also going organic, um, along with the grass based, and and uh, probably uh, most of us were operating that way, and don't like the paperwork, but it's also another uh, way to uh, let the consumer know what we're doing, and and have a, have a, there's a to. to uh, give them a peace of mind about what they're buying. And so that's been uh, one of the things we're doing. So there's a lot. There's a growing number of farms who are trying to take the marketing back and hook up directly with the customers. And, and uh, it's uh, been very very successful. A lot of work on our part. Customers have to search us out, so it's more work on their part. They may have to drive to get it or they may have to find a certain store or request it in the store. But, but um, they're very... Um, fast-growing segment of the food industry right now.
0: Dan's enthusiasm for farming and good land stewardship is infectious. No wonder the French farm has become an incubator of sorts for beginning dairy farmers. Their son Jason has launched his own dairy farming career, and over the past several years, two other beginning dairy farmers have been mentored by Dan and Muriel. To read more about the French farm and their beginning farmer protégés, go to www.landstewardshipproject.org, click on the newsroom, and follow the links to the LSP in the news page. There, you can scroll down to a successful farming article called, Beginners Build a Herd. For details on the Pastureland Butter and Cheese Cooperative Dan and Muriel Market Milk Through, see www.pastureland.coop. That's www.pastureland.coop. Pastureland products are certified as sustainably raised by Food Alliance Midwest, which can be found at www.foodalliance.org. That's foodalliance.org. For more on the Multiple Benefits of Agriculture project, see landstewardshipproject.org backslash programs underscore mba.html. That's landstewardshipproject.org backslash programs underscore mba.html. Dot HTML. There you will find papers, articles, and graphics that tell the story of how diverse farming can have a positive impact on the fish in our streams, our rural communities, consumers, and more. You can send your comments, criticisms, and suggestions about this podcast to me, Brian DeVore, at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org. That's bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org. Or you can give me a call at 612-729-6294. A special thank you goes out to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician and LSP staffer who provided Ear to the Grounds theme music. And a very special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member and would like to support us, go to landstewardshipproject.org to learn how to join LSP. Thanks for listening.